Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Get away from her, you bitch! Welcome everybody to Nerdfest, time for another episode. Uh, you are listening to... Ian McLaughlin. Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. John Farthing. And I'm Hazel Thurston. Uh, welcome, we've got a packed episode for you today. We've got the return of Shameful Gap. Uh, we've also got another film buff or film bluff for you. On the last podcast we talked about our favourite films of 2017. Since all is, all is fair in love and war, let's talk about our favourite TV of uh, 2017 because TV's getting better and better and there's some absolute blinders this year. Some peaky blinders, in fact. Peaky blinders. Oh. Nice, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'll go first. I'll, I really like Stranger Things too. Mm-hmm. I'd rank that up mm-hmm. there. Yeah. and enjoyed it more than the first season and this week we actually went back and watched a, f- a couple from the first season yeah. and liked them more having been and watched both seasons which is quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, got really into The Crown this year. Not mm-hmm. nerdy necessarily, but really liked yeah. it. From a historical point of view, From especially a, yeah. 20th century history, yeah. it's really clever the way it plays it into the story of the royal family. Yeah, I didn't realise what a Nazi Edward was. Yeah, the Duke of Windsor, not a pleasant mm-hmm. man, no. according to Peter well, I knew he wasn't a pleasant man, but I didn't realise just how close his connections were. Yeah, um, it's... How, um, how accurate is a crown? Um, or some things you don't obviously don't know whether they actually took place, but um, yeah. fairly accurate. The historical events that go around it, things like the Profumo Affair, the Suez Canal Crisis, uh, the Queen dancing with the President of Ghana, mm-hmm. um, which ended up turning that country away from the Soviets during the Cold War, stuff like that all really happened. The extent to which anyone would have access to any of the private conversations between members of the family you've got to assume all of that is assumed or fabricated. Mm. But the contexts are all pretty accurate, as far Mm. as I can tell. Um, The performances within the royal family, Claire Foy, Matt Smith, uh, Alex Jennings as the Duke of Windsor, uh, Jeremy Northam as Anthony Eden, John Lithgow is incredible as Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. All of those are good enough that you don't mind whether they're taking liberties or not with it. Um, if you don't treat it as a documentary, yeah, it's a it's, drama, yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I really like The Crown. Uh, from a comedy point of view, Master of None mm-hmm. is not always comedic, but just very, very good. Not afraid to go off in different directions, mm-hmm. take chances with the writing, and just a really nice, easy watch. Um, from a more factual point of view, Last Week Tonight is always worth mm-hmm. a watch with John Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, very good for current affairs. He knows, or at least his writing staff know what they're talking about. And finally, a bit of a British one, uh, Line of Duty is always good fun. Uh, There was a new series of that this year. Probably not my favourite of the series, but still really good value. I know nothing about... Nothing about this other than the title. So, if any, perhaps flaw is they're a bit over dramatic, almost. Yeah, may, you know, it's, it's, it's like everything blown up bigger than it might be. So, is it like a military show or? It's um, it's a police show, show but they're a corrupt. department who deal with corrupt police officers mm-hmm. and corruption within that. There's a larger overarching story that's kind of been dipped into through all four series so far. 
but each one's standalone. And there's always lots of really good twists and cliffhangers, and they're kind of their centerpiece are interrogation scenes or questioning scenes that they'll just let go on as long as they need to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they can form the bulk of an episode, mm-hmm. but they're always really interesting just watching for a tiny detail to slip in that'll turn the whole thing around. Mm-hmm. It's worth a watch. So those are my picks. Um, when I looked at the list of um, Best TV of 2017, I was actually quite ashamed of myself for how little I've seen. I'd, there's a couple of reasons for that, because I travel a lot for my job, so I'm always in the car, so I don't always get the time. Uh, but also... I just I watch the West Wing constantly. Um, it might, it possibly might be because I'm so disheartened by what's going on in reality that I turn to a fictionalized version of the White House for some sort of reconfirmation that this is how it should be done. Um, and there's there's a lot of um, things that happen in there that are in direct kind of correlation to what's going on today. So I, I, I kind of watched The West Wing and nothing else. But I did, I watched Stranger Things too. I thought that was very good. I would say my favourite has got to be Game of Thrones. That season, it, you know, picked up the pace massively. You know, characters travelled from uh, one place to another in rapid time. <laughs> yes, I can't wait to see what happens. And I think that is storytelling on an epic scale and uh, was very well done this season. Um, I really liked the new season of Bojack Horseman, uh, the the animated horse series on Netflix. <laughs> uh, for those that don't know it, basically it's Bojack Horseman is a half man, half horse. He was on a TV sitcom called Horse and Around in the 80s. And since then, it's fair to say his career has gone down the pan. And it's for the cartoon, some of the topics it tackles sort of depression and so on and family it's it's really really good you're laughing one minute and you're almost crying the next and the level of depth in it and it just gets better and better with each series um the other tv show that i really enjoyed this year is a revival i really enjoyed the new league of gentlemen episodes which i was a bit wary about i was a massive league of gentlemen fan back in the day had all the dvds the live shows and everything um so i was a little bit wary going in but it was as good as it ever was and again, quite touching at the end, surprisingly. Um, so those are my probably my two picks of the year. Um, yeah, I, I, I watched and enjoyed all, all the things you mentioned apart from The Crown, which I haven't seen. Uh, Star Trek Discovery, obviously, which we've talked about in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. That was that was really nice to see that back again and handled in a, a sort of modern, mature way. Um, I, I enjoyed the new direction it took. Um, uh, the Good Place, which we again we've yeah. kind of talked about occasionally mm-hmm. on on here, was a fantastic comedy. Um, Legion, which I know not many of you have seen, um, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a very bizarre take on the sort of not really exactly on the X Men itself, but um, it, it was a, a really involving and strange show that I think is well worth watching. Um, and the non nerdy things, Mind Hunter was particularly I, I good. I loved Mind yeah. Hunter, yeah. It's very very David Fincher in the way everything's framed and photographed. Mm-hmm. And um, again, there's a time there with uh, was it Line of Duty where it's a lot of talking, um, but it's good talking. Mm-hmm. It's David Fincher talking, so it's it's really really well done. And the last one I'll mention is Glitch, which is an Austra- um, Australian show uh, about people who come back from the dead. And how the people who are here cope with that. And there have been a few shows along similar lines recently. Um, 
like returned and various they were ever known various different sort of versions of that but this is quite di very different to that I mean, you just the characters are really nice you enjoy it you mm -hmm. want to spend time with them um, and I recommend that for someone looking for something on Netflix Worst shows of the year? The, the Walking Dead for me, I am. <laughs> I am most disappointing. Show. Most disappointing, yeah. yeah. In in terms of, I'm sticking with it, but I'm sticking with it because it's been eight years. I feel like hmm. I should do, but I'm not sure. It's, it's almost like they don't know where they're going. Yeah. yeah. See, I made that mistake with Lost and gave up three years of my life seeing that through to the end, and mm. I regret that. So. Mm. Um, I'm on season four of The Walking Dead, so it's still good for me. <laughs> yes, I know spoilers, but I just think it's it's so shoddily made and edited as well. I've just got no idea what's this going on. This season has been strange. Yeah, they, yeah. they cut to and fro across time without clear indicators that you've gone to a flashback, mm -hmm. and it you know it takes you ten seconds sometimes to work out that you're watching a flashback. And mm -hmm. things. It's yeah. not good. I just, I'm I'm still not entirely sure what's happening at what time and where. It's just the, the basic editing fundamentals have just gone out of the window. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very strange. I don't know whether there's something behind the scenes going on or some mm -hmm. budget cuts or something. But I think the worst shows for me are ones that once were really enjoyable but have carried on that bit too long. Yeah. But you can't bear to not watch just in case they get good again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we're still watching The Walking Dead halfway through season eight because, you know, it, it might pick <laughs> up. Um and... We're going to talk about Die Hard 2 in a little bit, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Uh, speaking of shows that have gone on long past their prime, to me, Die Hard 2 is a very, very old movie. And there's a scene where they're on the plane and they're watching an episode of The Simpsons on a plane. Wow. Which just shows me how <laughs> long The Simpsons has been going. Yeah, yeah. yeah Die Hard 2 came out in 1990. The Simpsons has been going since 89. 89, so it must yeah. be a very... Yeah. I mean, it's a Fox film as yeah. well, so I imagine it's a bit of cross-promotion. Yeah, yeah the... The Simpsons still has its moments for me. I can put a new episode on and still be able to watch it. It's better than quality. it was ten years ago, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's you, kind of getting a, not quite a renaissance. But... Yeah, you get that first 90s episode and they're so well made. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the 2000s and you think... <laughs> and then you get to the newer ones and you think, oh, actually, there's some good bits. Yeah. It's not back up, but it's certainly better than it was ten years ago. Because, mm -hmm. uh, again... Simpsons were involved in that huge Disney buyout recently of Fox, um, and so there's speculation: what would they, what would they do with it? Are they going to cross it over into lots of other things? Mm -hmm. or, uh, well, I think I mean I know it's owned by Fox, but I think it's fairly independently produced. And I think the deal I have with Fox is we give you the episodes, you put mm -hmm. them on. Yeah, I mean I don't know what would. I used to always think that if one of the main voice cast left. That would be it. They would go, okay, we can't do it without one of these six. Mm -hmm. We're done. But then Harry Shearer very, very, very nearly mm. left. In fact, he did for a bit. And they just said, oh, we'll, re we'll either retire as characters or replace the voices. Yeah. So I don't know if anything will end The Simpsons. I think, I think when mm. Dan Castle <laughs> and uh, Zombie Simpsons goes, I think that must be the uh, the end of it. I heard they had a very good idea. Uh, don't think we do, do this now. For when it nearly finished a few years ago, The Simpsons, it came quite close to ending. And the last scene was going to be Homer going into the factory and losing his Christmas bonus and then having to get the department store Santa job. And then going into the pilot from the first one, so the whole series was just on a loop and you could watch <laughs> it round and round. Yeah. Trouble <laughs> <of> the apes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Now it's time for Shameful Gap. So this is where one of us nerds who has not seen a famous nerdy film and should have done, confesses, uh, watches it and comes to the podcast prepared to talk about it. So we've already had Robocop and we've also had... They live. And now, uh, which one of us is guilty? It is me. I am guilty and... uh... Last night I filled my shameful gap with a healthy dose of Bruce Willis. Um, with Die Hard 2. Washington, D.C. International Airport. What's this about? Oh, just a feeling I have. Ouch. When you get those feelings, insurance companies start to go bankrupt. The tower's lost control. Instrument landing system is down. Backup systems won't come up. We've got blizzard conditions. Zero visibility. Attention all controllers. We have a code red alert. There's panic in the air. Professional mercenary. You got the world's biggest drug dealer on his way here now. What do you need, a slide rule to figure this out? You get the hell out of my office before I throw you out of my damn airport. And terror on the ground. Who is this? Who I am is unimportant. What I want is very important. Oh, we are just up to our neck in terrorists again, John. But for police officer John McLean. It's just another Christmas. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. Die Hard 2. Never seen Die Hard 2. No, I was was unsure whether I had seen it or not. Um, My my girlfriend said, you must have seen this at some point. You have it on DVD. Um, (laughs) But I had it as part of a box set of the, the Die Hard trilogy. And immediately when I saw William Sadler doing naked yoga in front of a mirror, I, I would have remembered having having seen this film before. Yeah, it, it, that's a it's a villain clearly not to be trifled with if he does naked yoga. Yeah, it reminded me of sort of Game of Thrones where the, you've got the boy in exposition and they just tie it up a bit by having somebody having sex in the foreground or with the bits out. <laughs> it was kind of a, a sex, sex position, I think they call it. Mm. And doesn't uh, he have like um, he, he does something with a remote control, like a quick draw? It's yeah. like, oh, okay, now I we have to take this guy seriously. I don't know where the remote control came from. That's what, what was bugging me. <laughs> 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 um, I I liked it. Um, I didn't love it. Um, I thought it was ridiculous and cliched in that early nineties action film way. Um, but it was a lot better than I was expecting it to be. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was still the recognisable John McClane character from the first one that didn't turn into like the generic action movie hero of three and three and four. Um, nowhere near as good as the first one. Lost that claustrophobic feel of the, the Nakatobi Plaza, mm. all in that skyscraper, um, split up into different locations. Um, didn't really help. I'm, I'm still not sure what the villain's evil plan was. I mean, you watched this as well, didn't you, yesterday? Yeah, so they wanted to free a, a former Central American general and drug lord called uh, Ramon Esperanza. So he's arriving at the airport under guard, and their plan was to hack it from the outside, from that church, mm-hmm. uh, and then take control of him. Um, for what purpose? I do not know. I think it was all just pure cash on the part of the people yeah. helping him. I thought it was... More violent than the first one. There was a nastier edge to the violence, a lot of, a lot of heads getting crushed and so on that I didn't don't remember from the first one. Yeah. Um, um yeah, it was more brutal and it wasn't um obviously no one matches Alan Rickman in terms of that villain mm-hmm. and his like sneering evilness. Um, which is possibly why they're like, We need to get a family member back for three. 
um, it was more kind of brutal or were just doing this just because, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't quite get the plot of the plague with his, his wife and the journalist came from the first one. That was a I coincidence, felt, wasn't it? That, it felt a little <laughs> bit, bit shoehorned in. I'm not sure what it really added other than him making everybody run and panic at the end. But. It is It is based on a novel, a novel called 58, uh, 58 Minutes, where a cop must stop terrorists from taking control of an airport whilst his wife is in a plane circling overhead. So oh. that one wasn't down to the fault of the screenwriters. But, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Well, they could adapt, they could remove that bit. It just felt like one plot too many. Mm -hmm. um, I did like, obviously we're going deep spoilers, I did like that the army generals were on it together. That was a twist I didn't see coming when he leads mm. across and yeah. slits the guy's throat. That was a that was a, a oh, genuine surprise. Out with the different colour of the when they're using blankets yeah. or not. That was oh, that was that annoyed me. <laughs> the, the, he's in an airport. He's surrounded by police aiming guns at him. This is the Bruce Willis, yes. and he just pulls out a machine gun and start. Which they don't know it's a fake machine gun. They and start blanks, shooting yeah. at this guy, yeah. and they all just stand there. Yeah. Like he would be he would be down in a second. Yeah, somebody would would have taken a shot at him. Yeah, I didn't enjoy the uh, the evil villains at the beginning wearing DWP jackets as a disguise. So I created an alternate plot where it's the Department of Work and Pensions <laughs> uh, yeah. going through and taking out the old and infirm over Christmas. Yes, they have a synchronized kind of. They, they're all staying in the same hotel, and they all leave their hotel rooms at exactly the same time, so they can have this synchronized walk down the mm. hotel room. Um, uh, but they're all and they're all carrying packages, but. Even though they all have their own responsible for their own package, one has to slip one to each other in the airport just so Bruce Willis can notice and go, hmm, something not quite right about that. Uh, it's a spider sense tingle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think about, yeah, Bruce Willis obviously had some input in the mind because every woman in the film wanted to have sex with Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> like the woman who he yeah. gets the fingerprints to, she's like, are you free in an hour? And then the journalist, I think, wants to give him a special treat at the end. And his wife obviously is pleased to see him. So it's like sort of Bruce Bruce Willis's ego trip there. Um, in terms of cursed Christmases, I did not realise that the actress that plays Holly McLean, her maiden name is Holly Culkin, and she is the aunt of Macaulay Culkin. Really. So in terms of a family that at least fictionally always have bad Christmases, <laughs> uh, the Culkins are not the ones to uh, go and visit. <laughs> Who would who would win in a fight, John McClane or Kevin from Home Alone? <laughs> I think Kevin from Home Alone. I think would be uh, would kill him in a second and laugh while he did it. <laughs> so is it true that Home Alone is just a reimagining of Die Hard? Die Hard, yes, it was a reverse Die Hard. <laughs> um, I think other thoughts. I thought, yeah, John McClane spends a lot of time monologuing to himself. How can the same is shit it? happen to the same yeah. yeah. guy twice? I know. I'm in an elevator, all that kind of thing. I yeah. didn't quite understand why he did that. It it felt like the stakes weren't as high as the first one. It felt I never felt Bruce Willis was in danger. Mm. But by then he's he's yeah. gone from being an ordinary person yeah. to being some. And the, this is an unavoidable problem in a way. In the first one, he was an ordinary person caught in mm. an extraordinary situation. And by the second one, you've seen him deal with that already, and you're expecting him to deal with it. Mm. So it really can't repeat how it felt the first time because of that he, he is now a sort of archetype hero as opposed to mm -hmm. um, as opposed to being an original character um, so I think, but what other notes I had I, I liked how he didn't save the plane 
with Colm mm. Meaney with his terrible English accent, <laughs> um, where they the, where they just the height of the ground, and then Bruce Willis is there with his uh, things that he set on fire, trying to guide the plane down. And that that doesn't work, and it had kind of the balls to kill a whole plane full of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think I read in a review somewhere like if you edited this film down to make it a in-flight screening, you would have about ten seconds of film left. <laughs> yeah. Um, but overall, I, I I really I really enjoyed it. It was a, a good quality action movie. It's not Die Hard, but nothing is Die Hard. Mm. Uh, it gets uh, seven elevator shafts out of ten. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, convenient <laughs> ventilation shafts for him to mm. call in in his vest again, which I enjoyed. It's some sort of US regulation that make him Bruce Willis sized when you're yeah. kitting out a building. You've got to mm. make sure that Bruce Willis can call through it. Yeah. Uh, did you know that it was not filmed in winter or in a snowy country and they had to fake all the snow? I didn't know that, no. Yeah. If you look, it's foam. Mm. Yeah. I know it's a bit of that in the uh, the the Doctor Who episode. That was obviously filmed in summer, and there was a lot of fake snow. But they obviously had a limited fake snow budget, so it kind of stopped just in the the outer edges of the screen. Um, I remember going to the Warner Brothers studio tour um, for the making of Harry Potter in London. This is unrelated to Doctor Who or Die Hard, but is related to fake snow. <laughs> and right. they had a section of the tour which is all about the various behind-the-scenes departments who worked on the Potter films and everything from graphic design through to set building. And over the course of the Potter films, they used five or six different kinds of fake snow for different environments. So the kind of fake snow you can use on a set, you can't use on location because of environmental concerns. Mm -hmm. But the kind of stuff you can use outdoors doesn't work under studio lights. Mm -hmm. And depending on what kind of shot you're making, you have to use different kinds of fake snow. And it was fascinating the level of detail that even something like that mm. has to go into. What I do know is that when you use fake snow on location, it goes everywhere as soon as there's a gust of wind and it sticks around for weeks afterwards. Um, so you've got to be really careful what you use with it. Um, hence why I think foam's probably quite a reasonable option. Mm. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't enjoy at the end where he was... He shot the airplane fuel hanger, so some fuel mm. came out of the plane. And no one noticed. And nobody noticed, <laughs> and then it went on the snow, and yet somebody managed to have a big line of fire. I, thought, I was thinking that, that, that fuel yeah. would disperse. Mm. Or even so, it, and also just the drips in the air were still enough for the to, yeah, fire that, to go up and jump up I mean, the, the film was entirely plausible up until that point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a couple of things in there I don't think were entirely the ejector seat <laughs> it, it, sometimes in the lines themselves so there's um, a lady sitting next to Holly on the plane and she talks about um, all the benefits of new technology just as an excuse to bring out her taser yeah. on an aeroplane I've written Chekhov's taser Chekhov's, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Chekhov's gun yeah. <laughs> um, there's, there's another bit where Bruce Willis who's having having a frustrated time at the airport says um, what's, what's sex uh, sorry. What sets off the metal de- detector first? Is it the lead in your ass or the shit in your brain? Yeah, it's again, like... neither was set for metal detector. No. Well, the lead, lead in your ass. Lead, I don't think lead would. Is lead um, would lead set off a metal detector? Metal it detects, maybe. Everybody would go through a pencil. You'd have to take your propellant pencil out of your pocket. You do know a pencil's got carbon in it, don't you? Not lead. <laughs> <laughs> um, it took two months of planning that. Really? Yeah. 
Um, what about mine? No. <laughs> the entire operation. It's like we've been planning this for two months. Oh, it's all gone wrong. Oh. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> fail to plan. Plan to fail. I was amused by her like you don't jerk off a cocksucker. I thought that was, that's just polite, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know, John. <laughs> this episode of the Nerdcast podcast will be rated. <laughs> I was quite disturbed by that line just out of nowhere. What was the context of that line? Yeah, I don't remember it. I think he was talking to the cop, um, Sipperwich from YPD Blue. No, Hill Street Blue, sorry. Um, Dennis Franz was having an argument with the military general who was on their side at that point in the film about whether they were going to annoy the other military general too much by winding him up first and they say that he's a, a cocksucker and you don't jerk off a cocksucker <laughs> I think was the context of it but I, I, I went on Pornhub and apparently you do Pornhub Pornhub is one letter away from an entirely different experience <laughs> <laughs> um, I did watch Mark Hamill's interview on the Graham Norton show from a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and he said he got in trouble from Disney for posting a picture on his Instagram of Luke surrounded by porgs with the caption wholesome pornography <laughs> <laughs> and they did get in touch and say Mate, maybe don't mention that um, <laughs> he kept the picture up yes yeah <laughs> So, uh, how many elevator shafts out of ten would you give it? Having watched watched it again, Hazel. Um, it's definitely my least favourite of the original trilogy. I obviously one's the best. Three I liked a lot, and yeah, there was. But I, I still think it's a there's a lot to like about it, and um, Bruce Willis obviously makes the film, and it's yeah, it's a I say a good way to spend just a couple of hours. So I maybe give it six elevator shafts out of ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the officially approved ranking is Die Hard One, Die Hard Three, Die Hard Two, Die Hard Four, Die Hard Five, probably. Yeah, I haven't seen five. Don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Told. <laughs> so your shameful gap has been filled. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing who who is next. Who is next? Um, I think it might be Peter. Because Peter, and I don't know if, if this is shameful, but it probably is. Uh, Peter's never seen Revenge of the Sith. Yes, this is true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it'll be quite interesting to see what you think of it, having all right. seen all the others. Do I have to see two again before I see three? Yes, just for a laugh. <laughs> just to make me just stop. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Lee's a badden. That's all you need. Okay, so one of our regular features is called Film Buff or Film Bluff, and this is where uh, we recite three facts um, about movies or uh, anything in the nerd universe, uh, but only two of them are true, and the nerds have got to work out which one is the film uh, bluff. So, three possibles. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number one, Terminator. O.J. Simpson was nearly cast as the Terminator. 
expert, James Cameron said that his demeanour was too pleasant for such a dark character. That's <clears> number one. Okay. Yeah. Number two, on the set of Poltergeist, the two kids, the boy and the girl, became so terrified of the doll, the clown doll, that they had to get a priest in to perform a mini exorcism. Exorcism, that word. Exorcism <laughs> on the clown doll. And number three, the sound of the velociraptors' um, voices in Jurassic Park is actually the sound of tortoises mating. Mm-hmm. So, I know okay. the first one's true. Yes, I think um, I've heard that, but I also heard other people for it. It was someone weird like Lou Ferrino. There's something. Mm-hmm. There's, there's other stories. Lance about Henriksen who it might was originally cast, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's why he has a small role as a cop in it. But yeah. I've heard O.J. Simpson as the, yeah. the Terminator before. James Caraman, not a very good judge of character. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, uh, they're going to cast him, but the gloves didn't fit for the. <laughs> the, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> Um, I think. I think the third one's true. I think. Well, I don't know if it was tortoises. I think it might be something else. Oh. Mm. It's definitely some animals mating, but I don't know if it's tortoises. Possibly. I remember oh, the kids in Poltergeist being scared of the clown, but the story I heard was about Steven Spielberg was stood, had to go and stand behind the clown, and make like a smiley face so the one, one was terrified of, of the clown. Okay, so who we're gonna. Which one was so it? So is it OJ Simpson was nearly Terminator? Was it the um, Jurassic Park? Sorry, was it uh, the Poltergeist um, clown doll exorcism? <laughs> or, or are the sound of velociraptors in Jurassic Park actually the sound of tortoises mating? And could you make for us, Ian, your approximation <laughs> of the sound of a velociraptor in, in the, Jurassic Park? In the or a tortoise ma- uh, mating, yes. <laughs> that sounds like a horny tortoise to me, so I, I think number I, two is false. Yeah, I think yeah, number I two think number is something two. that you would make up. Okay, you're all correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was no exorcism of the doll. Uh, they were scared of it, but uh, Spielberg used to stand, stand behind the camera. Okay, my film buff or film bluff is a very quick one, uh, and it's all about porgs. Yay! Okay. <laughs> Yay. Uh, because I am contractually obligated to mention porgs in every episode. Um, Who's yeah, paying you? To... The, the Porg <laughs> Union. Okay. Um, they're very powerful. Um, okay, so here are three facts about porgs, one of which is untrue. A baby porg is called a porglet. I think that's true. That's, true. that's definitely true. <laughs> porgs are only native to the temple island of Achto, and the tastiest part of the porg <laughs> is the leg. Can I point out that none of these are technically true? <laughs> Don't ruin the magic, John. It isn't taste subjective, though. No. One, one man might, sure. might like a leg, the all other fa- might like a breast. All facts it. are according to the Last Jedi Visual Dictionary. Yeah. Well, as, far, as far as them being native, well, they do fly quite well, don't they, for being having tiny mm. wings? Yeah. So maybe they could make it to another island. And didn't you say earlier that um, there is another island for the male caretakers to go? So they might have take some porgs with them. Take some porgs. Mm-hmm. Not that they yeah, they might be native to that island as well. So yeah. that could be true. I think porglish is true. I've I've heard of, I've Porgus. heard the term oh, porglish yeah. somewhere. Uh, I don't think the tastiest part of the porglish well, is the is the is tiny the leg. legs. Don't they? They'd burn by the time the whole thing was cooked. They'd yeah. be really tough, wouldn't they? Yeah. So I reckon the tastiest part is the arse. The arse. <laughs> the rump. <laughs> I think the t- I think the I think the taste part of the poglet is not the leg. I think it's a, a bit of poglet vest. So we'll go with the, the tastiest part of the poglet yeah. being the line, yeah. The, yeah. the bluff. I'm afraid that is apparently true. Oh, no. Um, no. Acor- according to 
arguably the subjective opinion of Chewbacca being one of the only sentient creatures to have eaten a porg. Mm. Not uh, that we saw. He, he grew he, distasteful for it after seeing He it did, done. yes. But according to the book, okay. the tastiest part is the leg. They are native to the planet of Akto, but not necessarily that island. Uh-huh. Okay. So that was a lie. Um, I have a horror movie film bluff or film buff. Okay. Okay. Um, number one, Michael Myers' Halloween mask in the film Halloween is a William Shatner Captain Kirk mask turned inside out and spray painted white. white. Uh, number two, Jason Donovan's real name is Jason Voorhees. And he had to change it when he became famous after the films came out. I don't believe a word of that one. And <laughs> <laughs> I like it, man. I don't believe it. And number three, Freddy Krueger is named after Wes Craven's school bully. There was a kid called Fred Krueger that bullied him at school, and he got his revenge by naming a famous horror movie character sure after him. Name, like, I'm, sure I've, I'm sure I've heard that before. That just sounds familiar. Yeah, the first yeah. one's definitely true. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Shatner mask. Yeah. 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 I wonder whether Shatner got royalties. Probably for the sale of the mask in the shop they bought it from. (laughs) (laughs) So negligible royalties then. Um, This is Jason Donovan as in... The neighbours, actor, singer. Uh Especially for you. Yeah, yeah, his real name is Jason Voorhees. I think that's that's the bluff. (laughs) Complete crap. Although it's genius. (laughs) (laughs) It's still genius. That is, yes, that is. (laughs) (laughs) I have some Doctor Who film bluffs. Okay, well, not really film, but anyway... At the time of his debut, Capaldi was only three months younger than William Hartnell, and by the end of their respective runs, he was 11 months older than Hartnell when he finished his. So, really, the old man's the wrong one. Um, The police box the TARDIS is based on was introduced in 1929, and Dalek means tiny in Serbo-Croat, even though there's a well-known story about how Terry Nation came up with how the Dalek name was, which was he had encyclopedias on his shelf, and it was D-A-L to L-E-K, and that's where he got the name from. Um, it's just a coincidence that it means something else in another language. So Tiny Daleks, Old Man Doctor Who, and the second one was the police boxes from 1929. Yeah. And I think that um, Hartnell is still the oldest person to ever play the Doctor when he started, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. But Peter Capaldi played the role for longer. For longer, so ended up 11 months. So I think that's right, because I remember reading that somewhere. I think that's right. So was William Hartnell playing older then than he was? Uh, He was actually playing older. Yeah, he was 55, wasn't Mm. he? When he played the role, I think he's playing someone in his mid-60s. Yeah. Uh, Well, mid-2060s. The police box sounds true. Oh, I don't think when they were introduced, I don't think they might have been around a lot longer than 1929. Mark uh, Gattis didn't recognise it, did he? When because well, he, he was the First World War, and did he say, "Oh, it's a police box"? When he saw that, don't. Know. Or did he say, "What the bloody hell's that"? Don't know. Does he say a police box? The uh, the they also um, there was a court case about whether who owned the rights to the police box mm-hmm. and who could sell over some like duvet covers or cookie boxes mm-hmm. um, with in the shape of a police box. And the Metropolitan Police lost the court case uh, on the grounds that you know they'd stopped using them in 1960. And when did they start using them? Well, that's what you <laughs> <did>. <laughs> How stupid! <laughs> <laughs> 
And but they lost the case because they were saying, well, the reason someone would buy a cookie jar now is because it looks like a doll. It's not because. So, it's but I think Peter's come up with a convincing backstory around his <laughs> <Yeah>. bluff. <laughs> I don't think Tiny Dalek is true because I, I would have known that maybe it's a sort of thing. I want to go for the police box just because I want Tiny Dalek to be mm. real. <laughs> Hold me closer, tiny darling. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go for the police box. I'll, with, um... I'll go for the police box. Anyone else? Yeah. Police box? Yes. I have no idea. I'm going to go for tiny Dalek. The made up one is tiny Dalek. Oh. <laughs> so it actually means far off or far away ah. in Super Croatia. Does it? Oh, it does. So does Father, Father Ted would have been, or Father Jack would have been confused. The other one, Father Dougal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, let's talk Doctor Who, Christmas special, and a new Doctor. I'm the Doctor! I am the Doctor. Something has gone very wrong with time. We're trapped inside a single moment. So sorry. I don't suppose either of you is a Doctor. You're trying to be funny. I believe, Ian, you are. You might be the biggest Doctor Who fan I know. I might be. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an encyclopedic knowledge of it, but I've, I've followed it ever since um, I was born, because I was born on the same day as the first episode was broadcast, so I've known all of the Doctors through all of his incarnations and her incarnation. Mm. So the Christmas special, I thought, was uh, a very fitting finale for Mr Capaldi. Well, I think he's been a, an excellent Doctor. Um, David Bradley reprising his role as the first Doctor, uh, I think it was a, a, a brilliant idea. Yeah. I loved him in, um, um, uh, uh, what's it called? An Adventure, Adventure in Space, Space and Time. Time. He was good. I thought having the first and last together was a really nice device. Both of them resisting their regeneration, questioning their place in the world. That was great. A uh, little bit disappointed with... Peter Capaldi's last moments, don't know why it didn't quite get me emotionally, which I always like it to happen, you know, you want to be sad that they're gone, but he kind of just went, oh, all right, I'm off now. <laughs> um, and I thought Jodie's introduction was brilliant. I loved her catchphrase, oh, brilliant, uh, which is great. Uh, I think she's going to be a superb doctor. Uh, anything else I can say about the episode? I think it really cracked along at a super pace. Uh didn't quite get the Bill Potts return. Don't know why that device was really necessary, but you know it was nice to see her back. Did so, you not believe? Was it because it wasn't the real one? Not the real one. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. Just don't, don't know why they decided to bring her back. I think it was just to get some kind of closure mm. for the doctor. I didn't get how Nardoyle came back because he's, is he? He's not dead, is he? He will be have been dead at some point at some before point. testimony started, which was in yes. like the year five million or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I really liked Peter Capaldi's reaction when he discovered that Testimony wasn't an evil alien villain yeah. and they didn't actually have sinister intentions. No. Yeah. It was kind of relief and disappointment yeah. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, you kind of didn't really want him battling an alien mm. in the last episode. You just want time to breathe and to, yeah. and to let the two characters pay off each other. Yeah, which it's almost a shame that he has regenerated because in the most recent series, I think he really properly clicked with the character and yeah. was finally getting stories that were as good as he was yeah yeah absolutely agree Including another, I would like to see another series with him I think he improved with every season mm. Mm. Um, I have quite a shocking confession to make uh, in that 
Yes, this this episode of Doctor Who is actually the first episode of Doctor Who I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm getting a really, really disturbed look from the corner. First Doctor Who I've never seen. So I've never seen. Ever, There's yeah. only 900 and odd to catch up on. So well, I shall make a start. It's quite good because you've started with the beginning of a new Doctor. So for you, mm. Jodie Whittaker will be your Doctor. Yeah. Christopher Eccleston was the first one I ever saw. Mm. Hadn't seen any of the classic series. No. And it'll be the same for a lot of people my age because it restarted 2005. It's about mm. the right age. Mm. So, yeah, I, I felt a lot of resemblance with the captain when he was like, what's going on? What's going on? And there was quite a bit of that. I was like, oh, I don't really quite get this. But um, a couple of themes kind of stood out to me. There's a lot of positive message uh, messages, despite being all about death and, and regeneration. Um, in, in that, you know, uh, I think the line at the end is, hate is always foolish and love is always wise which actually remind me of The Last Jedi a little bit. Uh, laugh hard, run fast and be kind. And that kind of came across, that was quite emotional to me. I think for me it was just, norm- certainly in, it's a, since 2005, the doctors uh, are in those final moments of just given, a, just given a moment just to be there and you kind of just, mm-hmm. it's quiet in the TARDIS and he just wanders around for a while and doesn't really say much and you, you really get the sense of, um, of, of succumbing to your inevitable fate. Yeah. Um, Not Colin Baker falling over and banging his head. I thought it was quite funny as well. I really like the line where the captain says, What do you mean, World War One? Yeah. It's like yeah. A, a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, the, um, Not so great war. <laughs> yes. The use of the Christmas truce was something that could have come across very, very iffy to me um, because it's something that is getting used a lot in culture and media at the moment Mm -hmm. and everything from TV programmes like this to live productions to adverts Mm -hmm. and it can feel like oh we need to be emotional but we're in a war we'll use the Christmas truce Mm -hmm. to me it over sentimentalises the war it kind of cheap shots it a little bit and goes oh well it's fine on Christmas they all gave up when the very next day, everybody was back killing each mm. other. And even on Christmas Day, the truce happened to a very small amount of trench mm. in a very small part of the war. A couple of miles down the road, they were still killing each other while that truce was mm. going on. So to me, using that in any way is putting a big risk on trying to be cheap and tacky and trying to induce tears in people. Doctor Who got away with it. They did it very, very well. It avoided being a Sainsbury's advert, but yeah. I'd like it if no program ever used the Christmas truce again because it's not true to the larger story of the but, war. But interesting fact: there were um, seven truces, simultaneous truces, all the way along the lines, uh-huh. with gaps in between, and people uh-huh. trucing, playing football, playing cards, sharing um, whiskey and stuff like that, and then another mile, killing each other, and then another truce. Mad, mad. Can I just explain, it's not actually Ian Wimpering. It's my stomach, I haven't eaten all day. No, uh, Jackie Doodle, uh, nerd dog, has just burst into the room. Cosmo the space dog. What do you think of Doctor Who, Jack? K9. Jack, what do you think of Doctor Who? Is that Doctor Who? Christmas special? Nonchalant response. Well, really? Okay. I'm not sure about Jodie Whittaker, or Jodie Foster as Doctor. (laughs) I was, um, I, it, it was interesting. I, I didn't like the Dalek. I didn't think we needed to see Rusty again. I'm not sure what that added other than 
having to have some villain in it because there was no real bad guy otherwise. Uh, mm. But I'm not sure why he was there. The, um, a funny thing that happened, this is nothing to do with Doctor Who, but it's funny. Um, at Christmas, so my, I bought my little nephew um, a remote control BB-8. My dad looked at it and goes, is that a Dalek? <laughs> <laughs> to which my niece, bless her, bless her heart, went up to BB-8, covered his ears. I know he doesn't have any ears, but he, she did. And uh, whispered, don't worry, he doesn't know any better. <laughs> um, I particularly like the, you know, as always in the two Doctor story, the, the best part of it is always the interplay between the Doctors. I, I think they that was always funny. It was it was good, and I like the you know the callbacks to bits of Doctor Who history and lore that they they had between the two of them. That was pretty funny. Um, was the there were a few things where they tried to show the difference between the two by highlighting sort of differences in sexist attitudes. Was that actually accurate for Hartnell's Doctor? Was mm. there casual sexism in the back? The, yes, yes, yes. There was very much. He was very much a. He started out as grandfather. Mm-hmm. Daughter, uh, his uh, um, niece uh, Susan, and it was uh, very similar yeah. in the kind of attitudes towards women. The women were, well, stay in the TARDIS, you'd be safe here, I'll go and do the work. No, don't do that, you don't know what you're doing. How could a woman couldn't possibly do this? Yeah, and I just reflect, I think it was quite clever at the time. There's 63, so attitudes to women were changing quite quickly. Uh, mm. Summer of Love, all that stuff yeah. coming through, uh, but they deliberately made him a crotchety old man to start with. Uh-huh. Uh, so yes, I think it, 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 it very accurately reflects the first Doctor. Is it part of playing into the fact that the Doctor is going to be a woman by the end of the episode? I think it is somehow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a real change in attitude there. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you want to see more Doctor Who, Hazel? Having the, is that first episode like whetted your appetite? Or it, yeah, it has actually. I'm going to be watching the new series. I, I enjoyed it, and I, um, I I watched it with my little niece and nephews, and I I, I liked kind of their they were enthralled by it as well. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I made, let me say, I watched um, the day after the Silence in the Library episode um, with Vienna Song's first episode and it's just it was better with David Tennant, sorry (laughs) I might go back and watch David Tennant episodes, Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of David Tennant He is great, he's a good doctor I was always a Matt Matt Smith over David Tennant he was probably, certainly since the re-beginning of Doctor Who, he's been my favourite his first series particularly the first one with Amy and Rory has mm-hmm. been my favourite of the past ten years. Has the Missing Tom Baker episode Sharda been shown yet? It's available to download. Is it? Yeah. So there's a, um, a famous missing episode because uh, 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 Tom Baker refused to do it. Um, I think the no, world, there was a strike. There was a strike, a strike they, on. They refused to do refused it. Refused to do year. it. Yeah, and they filmed some stuff at Oxford of him punting. Which they used oh, in the episode, which is the Five Doctors, but that's actually from the episode Sharda, which never got finished. So the BBC have gone back, got Tom Baker in, and they've animated the rest of the bits that haven't been filmed, and that's now available from downloads. And they've actually filmed a new scene with Tom yes, Baker. Tom Baker as himself at some point in it. So, <laughs> so do we have um, Tardis's out of ten for the Doctor Who Christmas special? <laughs> I'd give it. Uh, I would give it six Tardises out of ten. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Ian. Um, I'm going to go for seven TARDISes. I'm going to go for seven TARDISes as well. I'm going to go for seven and a half. Seven and a half. Can't have half a TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> you can, it blew up at the end. Oh, can I make a prediction? <laughs> yes. For the next series, I have a, I'm probably going to be wrong, but I really hope this happens. I think for the first time, a woman is going to fix the chameleon circuit. 
and I therefore from now on the TARDIS will be whatever it is because it's supposed to blend in with its surroundings because uh, in the early episodes um, especially like the, the Master's the TARDIS can, yeah. was an organ at one point a baby's pram <laughs> all kinds of different things yeah. I didn't so, understand anything you just said yeah. <laughs> the, the TARDIS <laughs> has a circuit called the Chameleon <laughs> Circuit uh, uh, which so it can blend in with surroundings because obviously a, a police box in the middle of the desert looks a bit weird so mm. the Chameleon Circuit would turn it into a, a cactus instead so it ah. can't see it this has been broken ever since the first, the first episode, and the doctor's never been able to fix it. But I think it's about time a woman fixed it. Nice. Mm, yeah. Okay. Mm. Well, we'll see if that comes yeah. true. Um, speaking of great TV in 2017, The Punisher appeared on Netflix this year, and Ian Mayer has appeared, and he's going to review it for us. I sure am. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm a big fan of uh, comic books, and especially a big ban- fan of Marvel comic books. And my favourite Marvel comic book is Daredevil. Now, Daredevil, uh, cinematically, used to be owned by, I think it was Fox? I really should have checked this. But it, it, was, one, um, it was one of the properties which Marvel sold um, in the 90s when they were short of cash. And the uh, Ben Affleck movie from you know, many years ago would, was a cinematic version of Daredevil. Now, I went to see that the day it opened at the cinema. I had half a day off work. I went to the dentist. I went to the cinema. And then I left. The dentist was the better part yeah. of that day. Um, now that that movie, although not um, although not you know by no means great, it has moments in it which are perfect. It has like single scenes which are just ideal and very reminiscent of like the Frank Miller era of the Daredevil comics. So you can't completely ignore it. It's the perfect wrong movie. Like I can't ignore it, but I really didn't enjoy it. Now um, the movie rights were held. Um, for a long time away from Marvel until eventually they reverted. Now, I was watching this news closely because it was just mind-blowing to me that Marvel would now get this character back and I was potentially going to see um, you know, a whole new film version. Of course, that didn't happen. What happened was Netflix, in some deal I don't quite understand, Netflix started producing Marvel TV shows. The launch of Daredevil, I took a day off work. Mm-hmm. I watched it the moment it came on British Netflix, which was 8 o'clock in the morning. I spent the day in my dressing gown with bowls of bran flakes watching <laughs> TV. It was great. It, it was um, it's close to Dead Old Days, close to a religious holiday. I've done that for both both series now. <laughs> um, and you know, as a kid, people told me I couldn't sit and watch TV um, with cereal all day. But now I'm over forty, no one can really stop me, and it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> I highly recommend this. So I've watched now all the Netflix uh, Marvel shows, um, and generally speaking, they've been amazing. Like I, I think generally the quality that these shows exist and they are of such quality is uh is staggering i'm a huge fan of what they've done with daredevil a really big fan of jessica jones i think luke cage nearly got there i think it had some issues but there's a solid um universe there which they're going to follow follow through with in the next series um a lot of people had trouble with iron fist i too have some trouble with iron fist but like the defenders show was almost like the Iron Fist series that it should have been. It was shorter, snappier, had a bit more kind of um, a bit more Kill Bill about it. It, it kind of played in that um, sort of kung fu universe a little bit better. And the latest show is The Punisher. Now, The Punisher um, is a Marvel Comics character that has been on screen an awful lot of times. It's probably the character with the most different takes that exist. None of them have been sequelized. Dolph Lundgren played him in the eighties. Uh, Thomas Jane played him um, in, I think, the late 90s. And then Ray Stevenson played him again um, in Punisher Warzone. Ray Stevenson? 
Ray Stevenson. Ray Stevenson. Not familiar with that. That's okay. Um, in Punisher Warzone. Um, now, why I think he's so popular with filmmakers to put back on the screen is he's kind of an action movie guy in a comic book universe. Um, the Punisher first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man in 1974, and he was basically Death Wish. He was the Death Wish character put into the Marvel Universe. Now, I think a lot of filmmakers have seen this and gone, hey, here's, there's something you understand, let's put him back on the screen. But when you take him out of kind of a superhero universe, as they did, it sort of misses something. Now, um, The Punisher first appeared in Daredevil Season 2, um, played by John Bernthal. John Bernthal is an actor I've been watching for a good long while. He was great in The Fury, which is the, um, a David Ayer mm. uh, war film with Brad Pitt. He's great in small parts. He was in uh, Show Me a Hero, which was um, an Oscar Isaac uh, starring drama about like American, American politics and housing, which is a lot more interesting <laughs> than that sounds. Um, he he's good in The Walking Dead. He turned up in The Departed. He's always been good in what he does. And uh, to The Punisher... He brought a really kind of um, haunted quality. He's quite a scary and sad individual. He's someone who's lost everything, was this kind of like empty vessel um, when he appeared in the Daredevil shows. Now, uh, Daredevil's a show with a kind of metaphor at its heart. It's a take on the character Daredevil where it's saying what he does is an addiction. He, is, he can't stop doing it. He goes out every night. He beats people up, he feels terrible in the morning, then he does it again. They really take this kind of addiction metaphor to the nth degree in that show. He lies to his friends about it. He's got kind of um, a scary ex from that life who he goes back to. And in uh, Daredevil, the Punisher's kind of the cautionary tale. He's how bad it could get if uh, Matt Murdock went down that road and just kind of ignored it, you know, lost everything else in his life. Now, when it comes to the Punisher TV show... Um, they've expanded the characters, they've done something different, but I think they've lost this kind of uh, metaphor and connection to the wider Marvel Universe. It doesn't play in the same world as the other Netflix TV shows. I mean, it does physically, but there's only a couple of characters. There's no reference to superpowers. It really, it really didn't need to be a Marvel show. That's not to say it's not good. It is. It's really, really good. And there's some amazing individual performances in it. Um, Bernthal's great. Uh, the guy who plays Microchip, whose name is Eben Moss Backrack, who's a guy I've never seen in anything else, he's fantastic. Microchip's character who's been in the Punisher comics forever, who's kind of um, the Punisher's tech support, and they find a background to this guy in kind of like the NSA, which is, is really an interesting take of it. Um, the key villain, Netflix shows tend to cast very good villains. They, they occasionally miss, but there's been some amazing ones. There's been... Um, Oscar winners playing villains in it. You know, Sigourney Weaver turned up uh, as a villain. They've got a really high pedigree. Now here, the uh, character is Billy Russo, who um, fans of the comics will know who that is. Um, if someone's going to watch the series, I won't tell you who that is because it, it, it kind of becomes a thing. It's played by a guy called Ben Barnes, who's extremely charming. Expect to see him as either the romantic lead or, like, bad ex-boyfriend in any number of films. Is that uh, Ben Barnes as in Prince Caspian? Yes. Ah, okay. Cool. I yes, like it him. Is. Very good yeah. in Westworld. Well, there you go. So uh, he's really he's real good. In it. Um, there's lots of great there's lots of great characters. It's very well played. But my problem is with it is it just ignores the fact there's um, a superhero universe here. 
Now, this is the same problem that kind of Luke Cage had a little bit. Now, in the Luke Cage show um, and the comics, there's a character called Misty Knight. Now, Misty Knight is um, a, form, a, a former policeman. She starts as a, a policewoman, I should say, who becomes a private detective. Now, in the comics, she has a robot hand with which to punch bastards. <laughs> this is the defining characteristic of her look. She has a robot hand with which to punch bastards. The TV show went out of its way not to give her a robot hand with which to punch bastards. They kept hinting that she was going to get a robot hand, and she didn't. Now, from my point of view... All fiction would be improved with the addition of robot hands. <laughs> like, Hamlet would be better. Four Weddings and a Funeral would surely be better <laughs> if main characters had robot hands. There's also this recurring thing from Star Wars and all these other things of people getting hands chopped off and arms <laughs> chopped off. I've no idea what that is. Just Whether it's the easy part, because you can just put your hand behind your back, or, <laughs> or what, I don't know, but Jamie it's always Lester. that. Mm. Yeah. Quite possibly, but, you know, in the world where we've got great CG and you can feasibly give characters good robot hands with which yeah. to do good robot stuff, Maybe they're keeping ignoring that, that is, is kind of a problem. So, um, the Punisher show, it just, is, it just really doesn't need to be playing in the same universe. And this is problematic to me, because you've got a character who solves all his problems by shooting people. He's very good at shooting people. If there's a person nearby who he wants shot, that person's going to get shot. Now, the bad guys know this. They're in a universe where they can bring bulletproof people in as much as they want, and they ignore it. It would have been a really interesting, dramatic play if any number of minor characters who could feasibly go up against this expert at shooting people guy and make it a bit more interesting. Like uh, Hammerhead, a minor Spider-Man villain, basically bulletproof, an interesting, scary gangster. A TV version of him would have worked fine. It just didn't want to concentrate in this area, and it felt a bit lesser for it um it's a thing we've seen again and again in the netflix shows which try and be a little bit more serious but frankly they do best when they start playing with these things the the fact that the punisher and electra were both in daredevil season two really mixed things up the addition of luke cage to jessica jones it injected this kind of shared universe and a bit of spark to it the punisher doesn't have that that's not to say it's not without merit it's really really good and in fact i think it's it's in my top three of the Netflix uh, Marvel TV shows. But this was a little bit of a problem. It played with some very serious themes. It was very invo- very interesting talking about PTSD and what people who come back from war uh, feel and do. And there's some amazing performances of people who are playing soldiers with these real problems. But to do that at the expense of the shared Marvel Universe just strikes me as is a little bit weird. Now, there's always been a weird relationship between the Netflix shows and the movies in that they're kind of in the same universe, but there's clearly a separation. Now, reading kind of, you know, geek gossip, it's believed to be because of a split between um, the movie, like the Marvel movies, which are held by Disney and run by Kevin Feige, and TV, which is still run under, under like Marvel's umbrella, which is why we've never seen like the Avengers Tower in one of the Netflix shows. Now, we've seen dozens of CG skylines. It's not that they didn't have the effects budget. But there's just been this slight uh, separation which has caused a problem. Now, that's such a shame because, um, like, Frank Castle's story gets so much worse if he's in a world where gods could have saved his kids or a guy in an, you know, an armoured suit could have fought his war, that he's still been in this, this kind of murk. So it's a little bit of a shame, but still, it is a, uh, it's a great show and it's well worth watching. How does it deal with the amount of gun-related news that there's been, particularly in America at the moment, 
not particularly well. And in fact, one of my one of my issues with the show is it is very much pro gun, and I mean that more than like action movies generally are. Um, if you watch like a Tarantino film, they're anti gun films. People with guns have accidents. More people, you know, people are shot accidentally in Tarantino films. It's kind yes. of this recurrent theme. In the back seat. So they're still they're still violent. They're still action packed, but they're they're saying it's you know even if they're not saying it's explicitly bad. There's a grey area in gun use. In the Punisher, there is an anti-gun like politician who's shown to be a cower, a liar, a liar, and a hypocrite. There's a situation where a character who should have a gun doesn't, and this causes problems. Then when they get a gun returned to them, it, it, they um, are now back in power. It's clearly kind of a pro-gun message. No one gets shot by accident. I, I think I read that it won't, they weren't planning on doing a Punisher series, and it was because it was well received in Daredevil. The, that so was all made is that true? I believe that to be true. So um, John Bernthal's been interviewed quite a bit about um, doing the Marvel TV shows. He was obviously asked to do the Punisher. He didn't want to do one. He, um, as, as he puts it, lots of actors he respects have turned down superhero properties, which <laughs> says, it's, it says its own story. But he uh, saw how Daredevil was being treated, which is um, a serious and very well-made show, the kind of space uh, and respect the actors were given within that, and agreed to do what was a small part. He only appears in a few episodes in um, Daredevil Season 2. He is a method actor. He got very method on this. I imagine he wasn't very nice to be around uh, while he was filming it and produced an extremely memorable performance. It was very well received. Um, And it certainly wasn't on Netflix's slate to produce. It was a bit of a surprise. Uh, As was Daredevil Season 2, actually. Daredevil Season 2 wasn't in the original slate. It was always going to be Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and then The Defenders. But Daredevil was so well received, they quickly moved on it. And in fact, changed uh, changed the creative team. Um, So originally that was developed by Drew Goddard, who um, is uh, like one of Joss Whedon's... uh, Coming in the woods again. There you go. Um, One of of Joss Whedon's uh, old mates who... Do you remember the Sony email leak? Do you remember when that happened? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was detailed, um, detailed in that. He was working on Daredevil when Sony offered him... Um, uh, offered him a movie and it was going to be a Secret Six movie so the villains of Spider-Man so he dropped out of his contract he left mm. causing a great um, a great ruckus to go to Sony to do this film and uh, Stephen Knight who's another former Buffy uh, writer and producer he'd also produced the Spartacus TV show and has since he's directed uh, Pacific Rim 2 he was brought on um, he was brought on to uh, to finish that. When the season finished, he was no longer available, and they quickly got on two other guys whose name escapes me right now. So it, it's it's a real kind of you see it, it's interesting this era of TV and the internet. You can really get into the hurly burly of production <laughs> if you so wish. But uh, yes, they can seem to be able to move quite quickly when they want to. Right, that's all we've got time for for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Please get yourself involved in our film nerdy discussions on Twitter and Facebook at Nerdfest UK. Um, we'll be back very soon with lots more uh, ideas, but for the meantime, you have been listening to... Uh, I'm Ian Mayer. Ian McLaughlin. Dan Watkins. Peter Johnson. John Farthing. And I'm Hazel Burton. Signing off now. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.
Pika, hey, motherfucker.